Well, happy Daylight Savings, everyone. Come on, be honest now. How many of you forgot this morning? How many of you forgot? I'm going to the first service. <laughs> then I wake up. I'm going to the second service. That's all right. That's all right. You've got more sleep, so you sang better, and I'm sure you're going to be better listeners than the first service. That's exciting. Well, hey, let me ask you a question. You've got to be honest because you're in church, all right? You've got to be honest. Question. Have you ever done anything in your past to try and fit in that now in hindsight makes you feel awfully humiliated? Who in your past have you done anything to try and fit in with those around you? And now you look, maybe it was the haircut. Maybe it was the outfit you wore. Maybe it was, I, I saw a few pictures yesterday and I thought I got to show these because this is the epitome of trying to fit in with the prevailing culture around. Check out this haircut. If you're looking for a new do, heading over to the beautician this week, take a picture. Go for it. Bring it back. Here's the next one. Love this one. That's the, the spike mullet. How many of you had a spike mullet? I had a spike mullet when I was in uh, junior high. Only two of us, huh? That's embarrassing. <laughs> Here's the next one. Trying to fit in. Trying to just blend in with those around me. Whoa. Yeah. If you're honest, you have been pressured in the past to fit in. Pressured to just be like everybody else around you. And it's not just kids and teenagers who face peer pressure. Uh, it's grown-ups as well. Uh, the church in Pergamum was facing tremendous pressure to fit in with the city around them. Only it wasn't just fashion. It wasn't just hairstyles. It was, uh, it was in terms of religion. It was in terms of politics. They were being pressured to into this mold of being worldly and to compromise their faith. We've been going through the teachings of Christ, and uh, here we are in this segment of the teachings of Christ called Seven Charges to Our Church. Uh, the Apostle John wrote the letter of Revelation to these seven churches, and each church got something said to them by the Lord Jesus. How cool would it be if, uh, dear Harvest Palis, we got a letter and Jesus said, here's some things I'm really liking about your church, and here's some things you need to work on. We're pretending each letter is coming to us. So the first week we learned from Ephesus. Remember what Ephesus had to do? Bring back the... A little louder now. Bring back the... They had the truth down. They were failing at love. And then last week we talked about Smyrna. And he told the suffering church in Smyrna, Hey, be faithful unto... One more time. Be faithful unto death. Suffer for the truth and even die, if that's what it comes to. Now, Pergamum... They actually were doing the suffering thing right. One of their own had recently passed away because of persecution, but they were giving in to the pressure to fit in. And so here's what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. He says, never, ever, ever compromise. Never compromise. They were growing weak and weary. They were looking more like, thinking more like, acting more like the world around them every day. And Jesus said, it's time to come back. Let's pray and then we'll talk about how we can be uncompromising witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in the world around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know the world we live in. You know those who don't share our values. You know those who pressure us to conform. You know those who challenge us. Lord, our prayer is that you would give us wisdom 
To know the balance. What does it mean to be all things to all people that we might win them? And yet, what does it mean to be in the world and not of the world? Show us what it means, Lord, to be an uncompromising witness today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, open your Bibles up to Revelation 2. Revelation 2. And as you're turning to Revelation 2, let me remind you that this book was originally written by the Apostle John from the island of Patmos. Here, here's a picture of the region. And, and John was spending his retirement exiled for Christ in the lower left there, this barren prison island. And he wrote a letter to each one of these green circles, represents a church that got a letter. So you got Ephesus and Smyrna on the left, and then straight up, there's Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum was a gorgeous city. We've got some pictures here of Pergamum. It sat up on a hill. Part of it was on the plain, part of it was on the hill. This is actually an artist's uh, computer-generated reconstruction of what the city probably looked like uh, in the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John's day. It was an amazing city sitting up on a hill. And here's another picture today. It's just ruins. Uh, there's the theater uh, that looks out over the hill. And then the next picture is from ground level, uh, looking up. And up on that hill were temples and, uh, and, um, and city buildings. Uh, now, the thing that made Pergamum special is they were the first ones to go down to the county and to pull a permit to, to start worshiping the emperor. They started it. They're the ones, so imagine if Palis, here, imagine if somebody from Palis, Vince, goes down to the county and says, I really want to pull a permit. I'm going to build a Rahm Emanuel worship center. All right, and I'm going to teach people that he's a god, and then maybe we'll involve Barack Obama in it. But imagine if we were the first ones to build that building and start that practice. That was them. Then imagine if you lived there, and then those around you pressured you to not just be a citizen, but to worship the emperor. If you didn't do it, it hurt you economically. Oh, you want to be in our trade guild? Huh? Well, around here, let me tell you how it's done. All right? Uh, so they felt... They faced so much pressure to fit in politically and religiously, it was unbearable. This city was gorgeous. The city was, they were, it was filled with culture. There was a library with 200,000 books. There was a medical center. Um, and there were plenty of houses of worship there. And Jesus says to this church in Revelation 2, verse 12, look at verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell. Isn't that encouraging? I know your city. I know what it's like there. He knows Palis. He knows Orland. He knows, he knows everything about it. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Wow, it's bad there. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This church had a funeral. Somebody took a stand and they took him out. This church had a funeral for a martyr. He says where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. He begins by applauding what he sees. Here's the first thing. You want to be an uncompromising witness for Christ? Number one, write this down. Stand for the truth of Christ boldly. Stand for the truth of Christ boldly. Last week he was getting... Smyrna ready. Hey, hey, some of you are going to jail. Some of you are going to die. Hey, Pergamum has already been there. They've already buried some of their members. They're suffering right. And they're an example to us of what it means to stand boldly for the truth of Christ. Jesus describes himself to this church in Pergamum as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
I don't know about you, but sometimes I think it'd be pretty cool to see Jesus face to face if he had something to tell me or, you know, maybe like Solomon when God said to him, ask whatever you want. Oh, wouldn't that be awesome? But everything changes if Jesus shows up and he's like holding a claymore, like a two-handed sword. When I think of sword, I think of the movie Braveheart. So here's the sword in my mind that Christ is holding. It's like this giant, I know the movie came after Christ, but just indulge me here. In my imagination, this is the kind of sword that the Lord Jesus Christ is holding. Okay, now seeing Jesus is one thing. Seeing him armed is a whole other thing. Why is he holding a sword? Why is he holding a sword? What does it mean? A sword is symbolic in Scripture of truth. Truth that serves as a standard of judgment. And therefore, violators of the truth in the church and in the world will be judged and destroyed by the truth. That's what the sword symbolizes. Jesus is the one who holds the truth by which all other truth will be judged. And in the church and in the world, he's the one who holds the authority. There, there was a proconsul or local governor um, in the Roman cities, and they were given what's called the right of the sword, the right of the sword, which is like capital punishment. They're given the right of the sword. Jesus is also showing that he has legal authority and jurisdiction over this church and over this city. He's making a statement of authority of his truth and of himself. He also is showing that he has authority, the truth of authority over spiritual forces of darkness because he's commenting on Satan's activity in the region. All right. So what does it mean? Why is Jesus showing up with a sword? He wants this church in Pergamum to know whoever else has authority in that city, who, whatever other power is at work trying to manipulate them, trying to get them to compromise, ultimately, Jesus is the one in control. He's the one with the sword. And hey, maybe, maybe at your work, all right, wow, things are bad. Jesus knows where you work. Hey, Christ has the sword. He's in control. You are not outside of his jurisdiction at your job. In, the, in Illinois, watch out. Who's in charge? Who do we have to put up with now? Hey, Christ holds the sword. In our country, where are things sliding off to? Who's put in power? Hey, Christ has the sword. He's the one commanding authority over all nations, tribes, and tongues. You can't get out of his jurisdiction. If you want to stand boldly for Christ, you have to understand that he is always the one in complete control of everyone in your life. Well, why does he let things happen? How come, you know, these mojos in, in you know, Springfield are getting away with stuff? And Because uh, he's patient and merciful, but he's armed and judgment will come. Whatever else you think about Jesus, yes, he's your friend. Yes, he's your savior. Yes, he's your shepherd. Yes, he's your judge. And he's holding the sword. Stand for the truth of Christ boldly. Because Christ is the one who has authority over all. It's bad where they live. Satan's got his throne there. He dwells there. What does that exactly mean? We don't know for sure. Uh, we know that it probably is most describing that the center of emperor worship was there. Like this is the seat of spiritual corruption in the emperor. It's where it began. Other than Rome, in the, in the Easter, you know, here, here's where it is. This is where Satan's got his camp. It was probably referring to that. However, it's nice to, I mean, it's, it's important to realize that there was also like this, um, this outdoor like temple dedicated to Zeus. Uh, you can check this out. They actually found it and they reconstructed it in uh, Berlin. So this is in a museum in Berlin. 
This is like an outdoor altar where somebody could speak or you could show devotion to Zeus. And it was, it was called his throne. Uh, so who knows? Maybe he was referring to the worship of Zeus. There was also a cult there uh, called the cult of Asclepios. Um, and their, their, their symbol, like their emblem, was a serpent. So the snake is, of course, associated with Satan too. So why is it called the throne of Satan? Why is it, it one of those three, all of those three? We really don't know. The point is this. Satan was doing great in this city, okay? And the church wasn't, and Jesus knew it. They were losing people, and Jesus said, Hey, hey, I'm holding the sword. You stand for me. You stand for me. Stand for the truth of Christ boldly. And he talks about Antipas here. He says him by name. This is our role model. This is our hero. He was so devoted that when it came to it, who knows how it happened, he died for the truth, and Jesus knew it. He called him his faithful witness. He says of the church two things. You hold fast to my name and you don't deny my faith. You hold fast to my name. I love that. Hey, listen, your primary loyalty is not to a church, not to a creed, not to a tradition. It's to a person. The person is Jesus Christ. And as you stand, as you become an uncompromising witness, name the name of Jesus frequently and naturally. All right? Work it in in your classroom. Work his name in to your natural conversations with your boss, with your family members, all right? Just, just saying the name of Christ is such a good way to state your allegiance to him, okay? Not just, oh, I'm a Baptist, oh, I, no, you're a Christ follower. You love Jesus. He saved you. Your loyalty is to a person, and Jesus said, I know. He says, I know, I've seen it. You hold fast to my name. He said, you don't deny my faith. So you are also committed to a belief system, a certain set of doctrine, but it's about a person. You believe things about a person, okay? And how are you doing at standing firm on your beliefs? How are you doing when something comes up to challenge what you believe or to question what you believe? Are you good at stating it with grace and truth? You, do you get quiet? Do you, do you? When I was at uh, Oaklawn Community High School uh, a couple weeks ago, we did these outreach days, right? That, well, the student club did the outreach days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I was there Thursday. Uh, so I shared my testimony, and then uh, I took questions at the end, and a girl raised her hand, and she said, uh, can, you, uh, can you tell me your opinion on gay rights? When's the last time you had to share your opinion on gay rights in front of 75 people in a public school? <laughs> I was like, thank you for your question. <laughs> and so what I said was this. I said, I was awful to homosexuals before I knew Christ. Christ taught me love and compassion. I said, but I believe that you can love someone and disagree with them at the same time. That's it. That's it. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. How are you doing at taking advantage of those moments that you have when someone says something that is so, so against what the Bible teaches or so against what you hold dear? Are you taking that opportunity to say something with grace and truth? They were in Pergamum. They were. Stand for the truth of Christ boldly. Let me give you three statements of compromise. These are three ways that you can compromise and fall and not stand for Christ boldly. Here's the first statement. You can write these down. These aren't in your bulletin. Uh, this is one compromising statement. Well, your truth is also true. Your, your truth is also true. I mean, my thing is true, but I know that for, you know, your truth is also just as true as mine. Now, that sounds sentimental, and it sounds like you're being loving. But what you're really saying um, is you're saying, 
Jesus died on the cross and he didn't die on the cross. Because Muslims believe that Jesus' hands never touched wood. He never died on the cross. So it sounds sentimental to say, well, your truth is true too, just like mine. So Jesus died on the cross and he didn't die on the cross? Does that make sense? Do you see how it sounds sentimental, but when you actually try and play it out, it's foolishness. Okay, they can't both be true. One is true, one is not true. To get both to be true, you have to embrace such a contradiction or stay in such a state of ignorance that it betrays a search for truth altogether. And it's not loving to affirm things that are not true. Your truth is also true. That's a compromising statement. The next one is your truth is basically the same. You know, like, I mean, when it comes down to it, what we're really saying is the same thing. Like, I've got my thing and you've got your thing. And there's a little differences, but really, we just really, all religions basically believe the same thing. That's a compromising statement. Okay? Because, uh, you know, Tim, Hindus teach you that you're just as much of a God as Christ. It's basically the same thing as what you believe, right? That, is that what the Bible teaches you? You're basically about as much of a God as Jesus is? So for you to say to someone else, to try and lower the stakes of the conversation, well, we basically believe the same thing. It's not a true statement. It's a false statement made to try and be loving. But if you're not being truthful, you're not being loving. Okay, what you're really saying is, you're really saying there's nothing special about Jesus. That's what you're really saying. If you're saying what we really believe is the same thing, then there's nothing special about Jesus because anything anyone else says about Jesus is just as true as what you believe about him, making him not special. The third statement of compromise, well, your truth is also true. Well, your truth is basically the same as mine. The third one is, well, it's true if you truly believe it. I mean, if, you really, if they really believe it with all their heart, then it's true for them. And who am I to say they really believe it and so it's valid? Um, okay, well, a lot of people really believe in a lot of really different things, okay? If they really believe in witchcraft, would you say that's a real thing? A lot of people really believe in jihad. They die for that. Are you going to say, well, I'll make a few exceptions. Okay, that, that's not, yeah, they really believed in it, but now you're going to be the arbiter of what people really believe in and what they really can't believe in? That puts you in quite a predicament. You see how foolish it is to say if they truly believe it, then it can be true for them. You're compromising, and the compromise makes you sound foolish, and it makes you inconsistent. The truth is this, you have to stand for the truth of Christ boldly. Don't be obnoxious, don't be unloving, but don't be a coward. And don't be deceived. Stand for the truth, the truth of Christ, and do it boldly. Here's the next point Jesus is saying, don't compromise your loyalty to Christ. Stand for the truth of Christ boldly, and don't compromise your loyalty to Christ. In verse 14, it says this, it says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying this, some of you in your church, Pergamum, are compromising their loyalty to Christ. It's starting with some of your teachers who are following this teaching of the Nicolaitans, and it's spreading through your church. 
And he said, you need to take care of it. He's calling on the leaders of this church to execute church discipline to remove some people from the fellowship of the church. And he says, if you don't do it, remember what he's holding, if you don't do it, I will. And I'm coming, and I'm armed, and I will make war in your church. Wow. He makes some reference to this Old Testament story first. He reminds us of, reminds us of the story of Balaam and Balak. Do you remember that story? Here's how that went down. There was a guy named Balak who was a king, and he was scared because the Israelites were camping right outside his city, about to come into the promised land. He knew he was going to get conquered. So what can he do? Well, he hires this prophet, Balaam, and he says, hey, I'll give you money, a fortune. Just curse the Israelites, spiritual warfare, curse them so that they'll fail in their military uh, you know, campaign against me. Well, you remember Balaam, right? He's on the way, and he's riding a, he's riding a donkey. And, and the donkey's acting up, right? His car keeps breaking down. First, the donkey, you know, won't go the right way. It starts hit. And the donkey, you know, won't go the other way. And then finally, the donkey just sits down and won't go forward because the donkey sees an angel with a what? With a sword waiting to kill Balaam because he's about to go curse Israel. So Balaam gets off his he starts beating his car. Get up, you stupid car! I need to get my fortune! And you remember what the donkey does? <laughs> he looks up and talks to Balaam. Master, have I ever served you poorly in the past? And you know you're, you've got road rage when you start talking to your pets. Because he starts talking back to the donkey. No, you've been a fine donkey, but we need to get going. Why am I talking to a donkey? And God let this out of the mouth of this donkey. God and the donkey said, because there's an angel about to kill you. And then Balaam lifted his eyes and he saw. Okay, so there's an angel there holding a sword. And the angel's message to Balaam was this. Say exactly and only what I tell you or... Go ahead. Scared. Scared stiff. Balaam only said what God told him to say, but he really wanted his money worldly. So after he got done only saying what God told him to say, he called Balak and either on his way out or maybe he came back and he said, listen, invite the Israelites to dinner. Invite them to your church. Let your women sleep with them. Their God will get angry and he will defeat them for you. And he got his fortune. He wanted his money. It's just what Balak did. King Balak said, all right, go, go on in. No, don't bring your swords. Go invite him to dinner. Then invite him to our church to worship our idols. And then women, get in there and work your magic. That's what happened. They started sleeping with the foreign women. They started worshiping the foreign gods. Outcome, God sent a plague through the camp that killed 24,000 people. It worked. Now listen, that's the story. Jesus says to Pergamum, with a sword in his hand, 24,000 died when the first Balaam seduced my people. Balaam is sitting in your church. You're letting him teach. You're not kicking him out. This is not going to end well for you. 
this is a warning. This is a warning to any church that lets sin stay unconfronted. This is a warning to our elders. This is a warning to our leader team. This is a warning to our small group leaders. You let sin and compromise sit in my church. You are asking for my judgment. This is a warning. Don't compromise your loyalty to Christ. How is it happening? It's, it, we don't exactly know what these Nicolaitans were teaching, but there was a false doctrine that was leading to some form of irreverent worship and moral compromise, and it was disgracing and angering God. My best guess is, based on what's mentioned, food, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality, what was probably going on is the believers were probably being invited to pagan feasts. So, all right, you're a carpenter. The carpenter's guild meets, and they meet in the idol temple. The temples just so happen to have the best food because everyone dedicated the food to their idols. So great steaks. And some of these temples actually had restaurants like connected to them. Okay. Now, eating food sacrificed to idols is a gray area. Sometimes believers could do it. Other times they couldn't. If there was a formal banquet where this food would be like dedicated to the emperor and where your participation is kind of showing, it's almost part worship, you're also showing your allegiance to the emperor, they weren't supposed to do it. All right, And certainly, when the temple prostitutes walked in at the end of the meal, the Christians should know it's time to leave. Okay, Because in the, in, the, uh, in the Greek form of worship of these gods, things got real spiritual when the hookers showed up. Right? This is how they worshipped. What they had was believers who were not only staying for the meal, they were staying for the rest. And then they were going to small group, and their small group leader was saying, That's fine you got to get by. There's nothing wrong with that. No wonder Jesus picked up a sword. They were giving in to the pressure to fit in by the culture around them. They were losing the battle in gray areas, which were leading to losing the battle in black and white areas. Okay, Messed up on food sacrifice to idols and therefore messed up with sexual immorality. They were compromising. Don't compromise your loyalty to Christ, which makes you wonder, well, then how can I be an uncompromising witness? Like, how do I know where to draw the line? How do I know if I've gone too far? Those are great questions. Let me give you a few, uh, a few things to avoid here, and then I'll give you some uh, pointers on what to uh, use to uh, weigh your conduct. First, avoid the legalists. You can write that down. It's not in your notes, but avoid the legalists. You see, right now is when the guy shows up who says, yeah, preacher, we can't be one with the world. And guess what? I've got a list of rules, a thousand rules of, of how the church can be pure from the world. And if you grew up in a legalistic church, you knew they had rules for everything, head to toe, rules about your hairstyle, where the part could go, how short to cut it, what kind of makeup you could wear, jewelry, fashion, can I wear jeans, dresses, Rules about your music, rules about movies, rules on how to relate to the opposite sex. Just how close can you stand to a girl? And they would ban things that were not banned in the Bible. Right? Avoid the legalists. Legalism is not the way to make sure that you are an uncompromising witness. It's not the church's job to turn gray areas black and white for you. Did you hear that? I'm never going to stand up and start legislating fashion. Right. Now, some of those people in the intro needed some strong words of exhortation on their haircuts, okay? But I'm not, we're never going to get up with the ruler and start, why? Why are we not going to do that? Because we believe if we settle for external conformity to the law, we're settling for less. We're going for internal conformity to Christ, which is more. 
And the lie of legalism is if you take care of the outside, the inside will take care of itself. That's false. It's a lie. Avoid the legalists. Also avoid the liberals. Write that down. Avoid the liberals. Uh, The liberals want to rewrite the Bible. They want to tell you which parts of your Bible are true and are not true. The liberals want to blend other faiths with your faith. They want to redefine sin. Homosexuality was a sin at some point, but maybe it's not anymore, or so they say. Uh, Avoid the liberals who allow unrepentant sinners to be pastors and leaders. Avoid the liberals who tell you hell isn't real, who tell you Jesus isn't the only way, who tell you Satan is make-believe. What are they doing? They're turning black and white truth gray. See, so the two mistakes we make is we try and turn the gray black and white through legalism, or we try and turn the black and white gray through liberalism. Both of those are false ways to deal with the world around us. I think a great example of balance from our modern day is, uh, how many of you grew up watching Full House with Candace Cameron? We got a picture of Candace Cameron. She's a Christian, uh, and she just got accepted to be on Dancing with the Stars season whatever, 18. So uh, what's going on is very interesting. The Christians think she's being too worldly by going on the show. But the non-Christians are like, what's she going on the show for? Is she going to start lecturing us about what it means to be a Christian? So she, everyone's mad at her. <laughs> um, she wrote a great post. She said this, My Facebook page is not a Christian blog. It's not a Jesus Facebook page, and it's not a place I'm going to flood with constant scriptural photos or only Christian articles. doesn't mean that because I don't do th- those things that Jesus isn't the love of my life. We all have our own personality, and my Facebook is a reflection of the true me, faulty and all. I'm sure some posts will make you smile and others might disappoint you. I won't, listen, I won't ever stop being the real me to be an illusion of a better but fake Christian version of myself. Isn't that great? Here's a sister in Christ, given this great opportunity to have visibility and to get the message out. And Is she being too Christian? Is she being not Christian enough? She's got to balance that. And here she says, I'm going to try, but I'm not going to be perfect. And I'm not going to be fake. You're going to be put in those positions too. How do we interact with the culture around us? Let me give you three words that will help you in your decision-making on a daily basis. How do we interact with the culture around us? Write this down first. The first word is receive. Receive. There are going to be certain things that you can just flat out receive from the world with a clear conscience. All right, now some people will tell you you need to not receive any of it, all right, but you can receive it. Hey, what cell phone company do you use? What fast food establishment? Where do you shop for clothing? Listen, you don't have to totally Christianize everywhere you get your stuff. You don't need a Christian cell phone company. You don't need a Christian web browser. You don't need to buy a Christian laptop or, you know, listen, you can receive a whole lot of what the world has out there with a clear conscience, all right? You don't need to demonize Facebook, all right? Some people want to say, I'm not receiving any of it, and they think that's righteous, but you don't have to do that. You can receive a good amount of it with a clear conscience, but there are many things you're going to need to reject. It's the second word, reject. This can include some black and white areas of morality, like abortion, like pornography, Like divorce in most cases, you're going to need to reject what the world tells you is right or permissible. But there's also some gray areas. I think there are certain musicians, certain movies, certain video games. Some may reject them, others may not. But let me just say this. 
There are going to be times in your faith where you realize in a gray area, you're looking a whole lot like the world around you with what you're reading or the games you're playing or the movies you're seeing, and you just start to wonder, is there any difference between you and them? Are you putting up any restraint on those areas? And maybe the Lord's issuing conviction in your heart because you have gone too far in allowing gray areas to become indulgent, and there you are, worldly, being swept away. I'm not going to give you the 10 ways to know whether you should see a movie or the five video games you should never play. But I'm saying this, if you aren't wisely drawing lines in these areas of your life, you're probably already fitting in too much because Christ wants you to stand apart from the world and to be wise and holy and upright. What do we need to reject? I can't give you that list, but maybe you should search your heart and ask if you've gone too far in some areas. Receive, you can receive much of it. Reject, there are flat out some things Christians should say, I'm not going to do that or go there or read that or play that. Here's the next one, redeem. There are certain things that can be redeemed. All right, for example, some people want to say, oh, rock and roll music, it's all from Satan. Well, Christians have redeemed that. They've come out with Christian rock artists, Christian rap artists. And you can't demonize a genre. You can actually redeem something like that. Um, you know, movie. I never see a movie. They're not the big. Okay, well, Christian churches are making movies now. Um, so there are ways where you can take something the world has polluted and redeem it for the cause of Christ, right? So how do we interact with the culture around us? Three words, receive, reject, redeem. And let me just say this at the end of this point. We are here to bring kingdom values to the world, not to bring worldly values to the kingdom. Let that guide your decision-making. Here's the third and final point. First, stand for the truth of Christ boldly. Second, don't compromise your loyalty to Christ. Write this down. Third, repent of irreverence and immorality. When you've gone too far, it's time to repent of irreverence and immorality. Christ goes on to say here, therefore, repent, verse 16, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay, now that just got really confusing. What is this hidden manna, and what is this white stone? I know he's got a sword and he's angry, and I need to repent, but what is the rest of it? Um, well, Christ is saying, repent of irreverence, that was their false worship. Repent of immorality. That was giving in. Why? Because I'm coming with the sword of my mouth. I'm murderously angry and I'm alerting you to the danger. Okay? So he says, here's the bad stuff that's about to happen if you don't. But then he says, here's the good things that will happen if you do. Reward and punishment. What does he say? He says, well, I've got this hidden manna that I'd like to give you. Food was one area that they were failing in. It's hard. Imagine if all the best steakhouses were owned by idol temples and you couldn't go there when you wanted to. It's like, ugh. And Jesus says, hey, I've got food. I've got food. I've got food that'll last forever. Remember manna, 40 years in the desert, God provided miracle food for them. It just came down in the camp around the Israelites. They just had to walk out and get it, bring it back in. Well, now we are God's newly redeemed people. This is the second exodus, and we are freed, and he's got life forever. You know that that life forever begins with a banquet? A banquet? You think you're going to be disappointed with what's put in front of you? When Christ hosts a banquet, you think the, the steak at the idol temple is good? Wait till I feed you. 
One of, the, one of the messianic descriptions in the Old Testament of Christ is he's, he's the one who is the host of the banquet. Why did he turn water into wine? To make a bunch of legalists unhappy? No, he turned water into wine because he, it's one portrayal of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He is the leader of the banquet. He's the one who will feed you. He's the one who will give you delightful food and beverage forever. He said, I'm the one who will do that. And I've got this awesome thing prepared for you. So don't cheapen it by going to what I would call fast food. Then he says there's this white stone. The best, the best interpretation of what this means culturally is they would sometimes use white stones with a name on them to invite you to a banquet. So perhaps some of these Christians that week maybe had even received this invitation, this white stone, this invitation to the banquet. And Christ is like, yeah, I've got one of those for you. I've got one of those for you. I'm inviting you to the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's my banquet. Right? I'm getting married to the church, and uh, it's going to be amazing. So don't go to that one. Come to mine. You get wedding invitations in the mail, right, frequently. And uh, I, I searched recently, coolest wedding invitations ever. Check it out. Here's the first one. This is one that says, shave the date. <laughs> He's got the date in his beard. <laughs> Here's the next one, child of the 80s. I love it. Super Mario Brothers. It looks like the game, and you open it up, and then it invites you to come, and there's a question mark with your reply. And That's what he's talking about. He's like, yeah, I've got one of those for you. I've got one of those for you. You're invited. Say no to that, because there's something far greater waiting for you. And this name on the stone, we don't know exactly what that means, but it seems, based on the context of Revelation, it's probably not a, it says a new name. It's probably not a new name for you. Maybe you don't like your name. Maybe you're like, I want a new name in heaven. It's not like he's going to call you Bert, okay? The new name is probably his name put on the stone. You're invited to his feast. It says in Revelation 3.12, I will write on him, that's us, the name of my God. Revelation 14.1 says, his name was written on the foreheads of the followers of Christ. This is an artistic way of saying he's putting his name on you. You represent him, you're his. And here's one other way, his name's on your invitation too. It's like he's writing his name all over you. Um, One of the main messages in the book of Revelation is this. Stand apart from the world because you are set apart by God. This church needed a wake-up call. All the churches in this area needed a wake-up call. Jesus was basically saying the church and the world are locked in a fight to the death. And you need to be an uncompromising witness. And if if you've given in, it's time to repent. And whenever... The word repent shows up in the scripture. I see this as a mandate for our church. I see this as a personal invitation for you as believers to let Christ search your heart, to let him search your soul, and to take care of business that needs to be taken care of. Listen, it's not every week that you come to church and Christ is standing in front of you holding a sword. Okay, but this is one of those weeks. This is one of those warning weeks where he says, listen to what I'm telling you. As you search your heart, I would just ask yourself these questions. Have you allowed some gray areas in your life to just get out of control? Are you showing no restraint? You know the Bible doesn't exactly forbid what you're doing, but you know you're going too far. Are you letting gray areas of your life, what you view, your media or entertainment choices, your, what you're reading, This even brings up the idea of food, your associations. Is there a gray area in your life that is way out of control? Christ is saying it's time to rein it in. 
Is there a black and white area where you're just being defeated? You know it's wrong. You can give your rationalizations, but at the end of the day, you know it's wrong, black and white. Are you losing the battle with sin, caving in? Here in the Bible, this day, this church has featured sexual sin. There's also financial corruption that could be implied. You know it's wrong. You're making excuses. And God's hand is heavy upon you. In love, he's giving you a warning. He wants you to show tremendous restraint in areas where you have to exercise judgment. He wants you to experience extended victory over your battles with sin. And he's calling you out of love as your judge. He's calling you to repent today so that he can bring blessing into your life and freedom so that you can be an uncompromising witness. Let's just all close our eyes. Let's bow our heads. Let me give you a time of quiet prayer right now. This is, this is your time between you and the Lord to allow him to search your heart. This is your time to allow the Lord to speak to you through his word. And just as the psalm says, test me, O Lord, and try me, examine my heart and mind. Let's just open our heart out to the Lord right now in quiet prayer.